morning, church. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for how all the elements of our worship thus far this morning have prepared us to open your word. We're grateful for the text of scripture that we have the opportunity to study this morning. We pray that it would have its intended effect upon us, that we would feel the weight of what sin does to those that we sin against. That we would be thankful for the, the means that you have brought about for repairing relationships, for repairing our relationship with you, repairing relationships interpersonally when we wrong others, when we wrong you. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is the great reconciler. We thank you, Father, that we are here this morning as those reconciled to you and to one another. And yet we understand that because we are imperfectly sanctified, that we are still on that road toward Christ-likeness. It is often the case that we wrong one another still. And so there may be many of us here this morning who have outstanding issues with others, perhaps within this room and perhaps with those outside this room, wrongs that need to be made right. And we pray that your word would move us to be zealous for reconciliation because Jesus is the great reconciler. So, Father, please move us to love holiness, to love reconciliation, to love your word, and to love obedience. We need your help in all of these things. We pray for it with boldness. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son and our brother. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. This book has been turning our attention to the central reality of human existence, which is that We were created for fellowship with God. And Leviticus does that in numerous ways. First of all, it has been doing that through these offerings of abiding, which were those first three offerings that we looked at in the first three chapters. Those those three offerings depict the joy of life with God. Leviticus also answers the central question of human history, which is how can I, a sinner, enter the presence of God? of a holy God, and Leviticus does that in numerous ways, among which are these two offerings, the first of which we looked at last week, which was the sin offering. The sin offering depicts the cleansing atonement from sin that comes from the shedding of blood. Now, if if the sin offering was the only offering for sin, it it could have the unintended effect of of giving us a somewhat self-centered conception of the danger of sin. It might lead us to think that sin is bad and I should hate it because it defiles me. We might think perhaps that's the extent of what sin does. Sin is bad and I should hate it because it endangers me. It dooms me to judgment. And certainly those things are true. We saw that last week. But left alone, if if the sin offering was all that the Lord had put forward in the law of Moses, it might lead to this idea that sin primarily harms me as the offender. Isn't it the case that sin, when we commit it, it often wrongs others? God cares about that aspect of sin so much that He provided for an additional offering in Leviticus chapters 5 and 6, an offering that acknowledges that sin wrongs others and that needs to be made right. God is so wise that He did not want a system whereby a person could steal what belongs to another person 
And all that would be required of that offender would be to bring a sin offering. No acknowledgement of the wrong done to the other person. No acknowledgement of the harm to the relationship. We, we've all experienced that aspect of sin many, many times over. We know what it's like to wrong others. And we all, we all know what it is like to be wronged. When we sin... It doesn't just defile us, it often also wrongs another. And if that wasn't true, there would be no such thing as a painful divorce. How many times have we heard that phrase, a painful divorce? There would be no such thing as a painful divorce if there was only this sense of the defilement, the personal defilement of sin. Divorce would just be a legal proceeding. You would just file the paperwork and that would be it. But divorce is painful because of the harm that sin does to the other person when we sin against them, when we wrong them in promises made and not kept. By this guilt offering about which we are going to read in a few moments, the offerer says, I have wronged persons. I have wronged God and man. And I want to make it right and be forgiven. So this is an offering that that we need to grasp. We need to grasp the principles that it teaches even now as New Testament believers. So having turned to that place in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 5, I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to read Leviticus 5 beginning in verse 14. And we'll read through 6-7. And as we read, I'll I'll ask you to look for a few things. Look for two main sections. The first section will be in chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. There's going to be a second section that will begin in chapter 6. And in each of these sections, look for how the sin is described. What words are used to describe the sin? Look also for what needs to happen in response to that sin and what differences if any, are there between these sections. So, Leviticus chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, Then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith, against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. You may be seated. Sin is not only something that defiles and endangers, 
but sin wrongs persons. Did you catch how the sin was described in those two sections? It's a phrase that has not yet been used in Leviticus. The ESV renders it a breach of faith. It's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew text. It it refers to an act of infidelity. In fact, it's a verb that comes from the same root as the object of that verb. To to render it very woodenly, it would be to, to someone who infidelities and infidelity to, to, to emphasize the sense of unfaithfulness. It's an act of disloyalty. It, the, the, the phrase speaks to a relationship that has been breached. And that takes two parties. It's a relationship it's been, that, that, has been, that has been violated. It's not just that a law has been broken, but a person has been harmed, a person to whom faithfulness was owed. And the law, I'm sorry, the way that this infidelity is expressed in these chapters is through taking something that belongs to that other person. In chapter 5, taking something that belongs to God and something that belongs to the priests. In chapter 6, taking something that belongs to my neighbor. It's an act of disloyalty or infidelity. And that brings us to the first truth that is presented by this offering. Sin creates a debt that must be repaid. Sin creates a debt that must be repaid. Now, every sin creates guilt. Every sin creates guilt. Some sin creates a debt. Some sin harms a person. Every sin creates guilt. Some sin creates a debt. So, every sin we've seen in chapters 4 and 5, every sin required the sin offering. That was the primary offering that brought atonement and personal cleansing from guilt. And since the sin offering cleansed one from guilt, and that was its primary function, some would say, and I agree, that to call this offering, about which we've just read, to call this offering the guilt offering, is not the best label for it. Its primary purpose is not to deal with guilt. The sin offering does that. The primary purpose of this offering is to make restitution in those cases where a sin creates a debt, where sin wrongs a person. And for that reason, a number of commentators refer to this as the restitution offering. And that's how I'm going to talk about it this morning. It's the restitution offering. So we saw two main sections. And the first in chapter 5 is about unintentional faithfulness. Within that section in chapter 5, there were two categories. First, verse 15 and following describes a situation of unintentional sinning in any of the holy things of the Lord. There are numerous ways to sin against the holy things. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 14, you might write that down, Leviticus 22, 14, gives one example of how to do this, of how to sin against the holy things. It, It reads this way. If anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, that means one of the offerings brought to the Lord. If anyone eats unintentionally of a holy thing, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. We might ask ourselves, in what, in what sense does that particular infraction create a debt? Well, that holy thing belongs to the Lord. And the Lord gives those offerings to the priests for their living. So what belongs to the Lord and to the priests, that was in a sense withheld from them. It was taken from them. A debt has been incurred and it must be repaid. One could also unintentionally sin in a holy thing by failing to keep a vow. An example of this would be, would be found in Numbers chapter 6 where we read about the Nazarite vow. You might read about that on your own time in Numbers chapter 6. And if someone made a Nazarite vow and failed to keep that vow even unintentionally, that would in a sense create a debt. And so we read in Numbers chapter 6 about how a Nazarite might unintentionally fail to keep that vow. You can read all about it there and what would be required of the Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 says, if a Nazarite unintentionally fails to keep the Nazarite vow, He must bring, guess what kind of an offering? A restitution offering. Why would that be? Because 
he has vowed to, to dedicate himself to special service to the Lord. And by failing to keep that vow, he has become unclean and therefore cannot keep that service to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has been deprived of something vowed to him that creates a debt that must be repaid. A restitution offering has to be brought. Another example could be unintentionally failing to bring a part of a tithe. And in that situation, not only is God not receiving what's due to him, but also the priests are not receiving what is due to them. The, the, the tithes are part of how they make their living. And so they're being deprived as well. What must be brought? A restitution offering. In all of these cases, two things have to happen. First of all, restitution must be made to the priests. What should have been given to the Lord which is what the Lord gives to the priests for their living, has been deprived. And so restitution is made in the form of the full amount of that offering plus 20%. So restitution has to be made to the priests. The second thing that must be done is that a male from the flock must be brought in compensation to the Lord, that atonement might be made to the Lord. And that animal is what represents restitution to God. So Restitution is made with the priests and restitution is made with the Lord. A second category within chapter 5 is unintentional sin of which the person is not even aware. Look at, look at verse 17. Again, 5.17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, commentators almost universally understand this to be a case where the person's conscience is telling them that they violated the law in some way, but they aren't sure how. And so they bring the offering for the sake of their conscience. And because the actual infraction is not known, no restitution of sacred property is involved, and so there's no value plus 20% to repay. Now, think about what the law is teaching about the importance of maintaining a clean conscience here. A person doesn't, isn't even sure what they did. It's just that their conscience is assaulting them and the law requires a restitution offering even in that case. Even when you're not sure what you did, your conscience is just telling you something isn't right here. So important is maintaining a clear conscience before the Lord that the restitution offering is brought in that situation. Moving on to the second section of this passage in chapter 6, we have situations where a person intentionally, on purpose, gains by deception something that belonged to someone else. So, imagine somebody entrusts you with their property and you lose it. They come back to get it from you. I don't know what happened to it. It's in my garage and I'm going to hang on to it. But you're telling them, I, man, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened to it. It's one of the situations. Or you just outright steal it. Or you see someone in a position of weakness, and you've got the authority to exploit that weakness for the sake of your own gain. Or maybe you find someone else's lost property, and you keep it for yourself. And when they come around looking for it, you lie about it. You say, no, I haven't seen it. I don't know. But you've got it. Any situation of gain through deception. Perpetrator's conscience then convicts him and he desires forgiveness. What must he do? He must return what was taken plus 20% to the person from whom it was taken. And he must make compensation to the Lord in the form of a male from the flock as an offering. Atonement will be made for him. That is the restitution offering in that, in that case. Sin wrongs persons. God says that component of sin cannot be ignored. In these situations, you, you don't just bring a sin offering to be cleansed of the defilement of sin, but you must also make, make right the wrong that has been done to the other person. It must be made right. Where sin is, I'm sorry, where debt is incurred, it must be repaid. A second truth presented by this restitution offering is that sin against man is sin against God. Sin against man is sin against God. You perhaps have heard cautions over the years against taking up an offense 
for another person. And perhaps there's, there's wisdom to that. But I would suggest to you that God is chief among those who takes up offenses on behalf of others. And this passage demonstrates it. Look, look, look again at Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor. See, this person has stolen from a person. This is not a holy thing that was deprived to the Lord or deprived the priests. This is something that just belongs to Joe Blow and you've stolen it. But this text says this is a breach of faith against the Lord. It's not just a sin against man, but it's an act of unfaithfulness to God. God cares for those who are made in His image, and when they are wronged, He is offended. And pay close attention to the order of the requirements in this whole section. What is the order of events that must be done in order for all of these things to be made right? It is only after restitution has been made to the offended human party that atonement is made and forgiveness is given by God. Essentially, God is saying throughout this section, don't think that you and I are going to be okay until you've made things right with that person that you have wronged. So, we think about our interpersonal interactions with, with, with others. When someone has wronged you, when someone has sinned against you, and you, you, you feel as if you are alone in that, Understand that you are not alone in that place. God is offended on your behalf. And He cares deeply that you have been harmed. He will hold that person responsible. In fact, the the Scriptures say, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is going to be far more purely righteously angry about that offense than you ever could be. Now think about if you are on the other side of that, that offense equation. The, let's say that, that we are the offender. This is something then also to keep in mind. We, we may tend to categorize sin in ways charitable to ourselves. We may recognize in our consciences that we have wronged someone, but we think to ourselves, well, I only did this small thing. To, to this person, and he, he kind of deserved it for this reason or that reason. Well, just keep in mind that, that the word indicates here that whether or not that person deserved it or not, whether or not they are of impeccable character or not, by sinning against that person, that imperfect person, God has been offended on their behalf. And things will not be okay between me and that person that I've wronged, I'm sorry, between me and God until I've made things right between, between me and that, that person that I've wronged. So for that reason, I should feel acutely the weight of interpersonal wrongs. I should feel acutely the weight of horizontal wrongs because they, they cause a, a vertical friction between me and God. The third truth presented by the restitution offering is that forgiveness is possible for the repentant. Forgiveness is possible for the repentant. And numerous commentators mention this. The, these verses in chapter 6 appear to be the only place in Leviticus where an offering is prescribed for an intentional sin, for an on-purpose sin. And the key seems to be that the person's conscience can, convicts him. That's the significance of the phrase, he realized his guilt in verse 4. He realized his guilt. His his conscience assaults him and he desires to turn from that sin as evidenced by making restitution. In other words, if there is confession, if there's repentance evidenced by making restitution in the form of returning everything that was taken plus 20% and the appropriate compensation to the Lord in the offering of the ram, the offender would be forgiven. Now, I mentioned last week that, that for, 
a lot of these marquee sins, things that we would think of as truly sinful, there was no forgiveness. And that, 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 that led to the death penalty. Now, that still holds. And we know that because of Leviticus 19, verses 20 through 22. You might write that down and you can look at that in its context. But those verses, Leviticus 19, 20 through 22, make a distinction between what we might think of as garden variety adultery on the one hand and fornication with a slave on the other hand. In the, the, the first case, regular old adultery, that's the death penalty. The second case, you could bring a guilt offering for that or a restitution offering for that and that, that context explains why. I won't get into to it right now, but that should lead us to understand that, that not every situation where there is repentance in the, under the law of Moses could lead to forgiveness. Some of these sins still are going to lead to the death penalty. Murder, blasphemy, violating the Sabbath, dishonoring parents. It appears that there's a very narrow set of intentional sins where there could be forgiveness via repentance and restitution. But the point is that the concept is presented here that repentance is the appropriate response to the realization that one has incurred a sin debt, that one has wronged a person. You don't just bring a sin offering to God, but you must make things right with the person against whom you have sinned. Now, again, we're, we're, we're left with that reality that there are all of these other sins for which there cannot be forgiveness, and we're left with the reality that we have sinned in so many ways for which there, there aren't enough animals in the world to sacrifice in order to bring compensation to God. So what to do? Well, if you were here last week, you know that Christ is the answer to all of those things. And so we come to our, our next step in this glorious chain of, of truth, which is that Christ is the perfect restitution offering for repentant sinners. Christ is the perfect restitution offering for repentant sinners. We, we are very fond around here of Isaiah 53, which is one of the, the clearest prophecies of the coming Christ in all of the Old Testament. We're not going to read all of that this morning, but I'll, we'll read to you verse 10 right now. This is verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. This is speaking of the coming Christ. It was the will of the Lord, the will of the Father, to crush the coming Christ, the Son, He, the Father, has put on Him, the Son, has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. Now that phrase, an offering for guilt, there in Isaiah 53, 10, is the word for the restitution offering that we get from Leviticus 5, 6. In fact, the, 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 the Lexham English Bible captures that connection for us by translating those words. If he places his life for a guilt offering, indicating to us that, that, that Christ on the cross represented this guilt offering, this restitution offering for sinners. That, pro, that prophecy of Isaiah is specifically picturing the Messiah as our compensation to God for all the offenses of our sin against His person. He is the sin debt payment for us. And He's a perfect one. What that means is that there is then no debt left for us to pay to God. There is no further offering to make. This is, this is, this is not a debt forgiveness in the sense that the debt just ceases to exist, but it is vicarious debt payment. Christ actually paid the debt for us. Uh, Pastor Jason read for us earlier this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read it again now. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled the record of debt in that He paid it. He paid it by nailing it to the cross in the flesh of Christ. But an important question for us this morning is, for whom? 
For whom was Christ that perfect restitution? Whose debt is paid? The answer of the New Testament is the repentant. The repentant, the debt of the repentant is paid. And we need to be careful here that we don't misunderstand the principles of the restitution offering. Restitution to man in the restitution offering, that could be quantified and paid. You know, it's, it's, it's the full extent of whatever was taken plus 20%. Restitution to God really couldn't be quantified. And as with the sin offering that we looked at last week, restitution to God in, in the restitution offering, that's just pictured in that offering. And what it pictures is the ultimate price of death poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ. So in the case of restitution to, to God, our repentance is not paying for anything, but rather it is, is recognizing that we, we, are, we are indebted to God because of the sin that we've committed to Him. We are turning away from that sin and recognizing we can't pay anything to God and we are entrusting in Christ to pay that, den, that, that debt for us. But repentance is required in that sense. It's not a payment. It's turning from sin, but it is required. And that's why a consistent component of the gospel preaching in the New Testament was a call to repentance, whether that preaching is coming from the lips of Christ or from His apostles. So, for example, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, there we find Jesus saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 6, verse 12, speaking of the disciples, reads, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It's the appropriate response to the good news. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless one turns from sin, the sin that incurred that debt, and turns toward Christ, trusting Him to pay that debt, a person will not be forgiven of their sin. However, unlike with the Old Testament restitution offering where, where there, was, there, there were many sins that, that could not be forgiven, with the restitution in Christ, where there is repentance and faith, there is forgiveness for any and every sin. Now, there, there's another component of the restitution offering that we find echoed in New Testament life. And we'll consider this, this principle a piece at a time. I'll give it to you a piece at a time. And the first little piece is that to enjoy peace with God, we must. That's the first little piece of it. To enjoy peace with God, we must. And I want to talk just about that first little component for a second. We're talking now about enjoying peace with God, not acquiring peace peace with God or having peace with God. We saw last week that Christ reconciled us to God by faith. That was Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Therefore, if we have repented of our sin and trusted in Christ, we have peace with God. That is, there is no enmity between us and God. We've been reconciled. It is possible, though, according to the New Testament, to find ourselves in a situation where we are unable to enjoy that peace. Unable to enjoy that vertical relationship due to a refusal to acknowledge and resolve sin in our horizontal relationships. So, with these following pieces of this point, I'm not suggesting that in order to have peace with God, in order to acquire peace with God, we must do these following things. What I'm saying is that in order to enjoy the peace that Christ has earned for us, we must do these things. So, in order to enjoy peace with God, we must seek reconciliation with others. We must seek reconciliation with others. Jesus taught us this in Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Michael read this for us earlier. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Do you see what Jesus is doing in the context of the whole Bible? Jesus is bringing the principle of the restitution offering into kingdom life. The idea is don't bother trying to engage in joyful fellowship with God when you know you have wronged someone else. First, go and make that right. Sin against that person is sin against God. And it is therefore going to affect your ability to enjoy fellowship with Him. We find that principle at work in other places in the New Testament. One notable place for many of us is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where husbands find this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, how many of us are willing to allow outstanding things, outstanding wrongs that we have committed against our wives to just linger out there, thinking erroneously, along with the world, time heals all wounds, that's water under the bridge. No, if it's it's unreconciled, it exists in the present between you and your wife and between you and, and God. And it's hindering your prayers in the sense that there's friction between you and God. You cannot enjoy, enjoy fellowship with God until you get that thing right. I'm aware of a situation, and this is, this is not a situation at Providence, not someone who, who goes to Providence, but a, a person who has sinned against a long string of people. Broken relationship after broken relationship. And the person has been approached by numerous pastors to make those relationships right. And each time a new pastor approaches this person, this person just moves to a new church. That person can can hardly go into public now because everywhere this person goes, there's, there's just burned bridges Everywhere, everywhere. This person is miserable because there's there's not just a a road strewn with wrecked horizontal relationships, but this person has a strained relationship with God. And until this person owns all those wrongs and seeks to make them right, this person will experience an intense feeling of distance from God. God. Now, it doesn't take a host of broken relationships to come to that place. It just takes one. Just one. So, if you know that you have wronged someone, make that right so that you can be reconciled to them and enjoy the Lord. To enjoy peace with, the, with God, one must seek reconciliation with others through repentance. The next little bit of this point. Through repentance. Repentance is the doorway to reconciliation. So when we seek to reconcile with another person, we must repent. And that repentance should be expressed. I wronged you by, you fill in the blank with with the biblical category for the sin, however you wronged against that person. I, I wronged you by doing this and... I'm turning away from that sin. I never want to do that again. That is how you express repentance. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. There Paul's addressing an issue of sin in the the church there at Corinth. And he, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. 
At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And we could spend a lot of time working through those couple of verses, but it gives us an idea of characteristics of true repentance, earnestness to clear oneself. Now, that does not mean to prove that you didn't do it in the past, but to make sure that it doesn't happen again. That is, to clear yourself in the future. And, and indignation about, about what you've done, and fear, longing, zeal, punishment, all of these words indicate a disposition toward that sin, not only of utter remorse, but horror at having committed it and determination to be free from its grip in the future. I wonder how many of us have, have gone to someone in the past to make things right in a sense, but we're, we hold back because we're concerned that if we make too strong a statement of contrition, then we might prompt that person to think they've got the upper hand. And we're actually more concerned about a sin that they've committed in this interaction. And so we'll put out some kind of metaphorically tiny shriveled olive branch to see if that coaxes them into taking responsibility for what we view as the real sin in the situation. I would suggest to you that that is not repentance. Repentance hates one's own sin. I hate what I did. And I never want to do it again. And, and there's, there's a place for, for holding other people responsible for their own good. But that's a back burner thing for the repentant heart. And so just as repentance is the precursor to reconciliation with God, so also with man. To enjoy peace with God, one must seek reconciliation with others through repentance, evidenced by fruit. Evidenced by fruit is the last little piece of this. Now, we're, we're focusing on the side of this equation, the offender side. So we're thinking of this primarily from the offender side. But I want to clarify something from the offendee side, okay? So there's something that we may, we may take wrong here by this last piece, evidenced by fruit. If you're the one wronged, you do not wait for changed behavior before you forgive. Listen to this. This is Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now that scenario, I believe in a sense is hyperbolic in what Jesus is saying here. But it indicates, look... You need to be so ready to forgive that upon the, the verbal expression of repentance, you, you are forgiving that person. You, you're not waiting for fruit. Okay, that's, that's on the offended side, but let's go back to the offender side. As the repentant, we should be looking to bring forth the fruit of repentance. Life change that gives evidence of heart change. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Anybody want to finish it? What, what, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, you, you come down, or I'm going to your house today, right? When I was a little boy, I always just thought, Jesus doesn't sound super excited about that, and it's, it sounds like Zacchaeus is getting scolded, right? I, I'm going to read this in the way that I think that we should understand it. There's nothing wrong with the song, but, but I, I took that as, man, Zacchaeus is getting in trouble here. I'm going to read this the way that I think that we should understand it. This is Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. 
And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, text tells us, the chief tax collector. Now the, pe- the people hated these guys because they were seen as traitors. They, they were collecting taxes for the Romans. Additionally, they tended to collect more tax than was required and, and thereby line their own pockets. So they, they, they were usually rich. And that appears to be what Zacchaeus has, has been doing based upon what he has, has confessed here and what he said that he's going to do. Look at the repentance evidenced here by the level of restitution. The law required the full amount plus 20%. Zacchaeus is, is vowing to pay back the full amount times four. And what, what does Jesus say, say here? Salvation has come to this house. Now, why, why would Jesus say that? Is it because Zacchaeus has done this marvelous good work? I would suggest that that's the wrong way to understand this. I would suggest that Zacchaeus has repented. And he's turned to Jesus, and that faith and repentance is evidenced by the fruit of this extraordinary act of restitution. Now, There may may be situations where we sin against a person in such a way that we need to make them whole, so to speak. If they've been defrauded in a manner similar to those described in Leviticus 6 or or, or Luke 19, Repentance will move us to make restitution. I hate what I did. So I want to make things right by making you whole. But here's a a fruit of repentance that's often overlooked. A willingness to accept consequences. A willingness to accept consequences. It is a mistake to think that forgiveness means the removal of of temporal consequences. It's a mistake to think that forgiveness means the removal of temporal consequences. God's forgiveness doesn't even mean the removal of temporal consequences. Eternal consequences, yes, but not temporal consequences. Rob a bank and ask God to forgive you. You'll find this out. God will forgive you. You will still go to jail. You, you will still suffer the, the temporal consequences of, of that sin. You think back to the restitution offering. You pay back what was owed plus 20%. The forgiveness that God gives doesn't remove the necessity to make restitution. That restitution is evidence of a heart that is changed toward the sin. Repentance is is evidenced by a willingness to accept temporal consequences. Fruit of repentance is also going to include changed character. That's why we as the offender should should be looking to, to live differently because we have turned from that sin. I'm turning from the wrong that I committed, not just with my mind, but with my life. The restitution offering recognizes sin wrongs persons. It creates a debt. Christ is the perfect restitution offering to God. He has paid our sin debt to God and He has indicated to us in Matthew 23 that a reflection of His character is to make right relationships. And so, even as we thank God for paying our sin debt in Christ, let us consider those wrongs against others that we still have outstanding. And let us be zealous to seek reconciliation, 
expressing repentance in whatever ways appropriate to the situation. Only then can we enjoy peace with God. I commend to you Paul's example in Acts 24.16 where, where we read his words. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. I'm going to pray in just a moment and we'll then enjoy a, a brief moment of silent reflection. And, and I encourage you in that moment to consider what horizontal relationship, if any, you may have in which there is an outstanding wrong, a wrong that, that you need to make right, a wrong that is not only a wrong against that person but against God, a wrong that may be hindering your enjoyment of the peace that Christ bought you with God. You have that peace with God. There's no enmity between you and God. But the enjoyment of fellowship is being hindered by the offense that you have committed against that person. And so out of love for them and love for God, it needs to be made right. Consider before the Lord who that is, what He requires of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are such a loving God that when it comes to our ungodliness, our sin, our infractions of Your law, you are not merely concerned about how those infractions have, have offended your character, but you are so loving that you care very deeply about how those sins have wronged other people. It's such an amazing testimony to your kindness to those created in your image. We pray, Father, that you would move us to, to love that in you, that we would be comforted by it, those of us who have been wronged, that we would find ourselves comforted by the thought that in our state of, of, of pain at having been sinned against, that you are there with us, that you are offended as well, that you are the one who will hold the person accountable, that, that we are free upon their repentance to forgive them, to love them even now, and to pray for their being moved to repentance, that they might be reconciled to you and to us. We pray also that we would be comforted as the offender, that as we approach the other person to make things right with them, that, that we are doing something that is pleasing to you. Father, if there are unreconciled relationships in this congregation, we pray that today would be a great day of reconciliation that those who have offended would be moved by love and righteousness to do the right thing and, and make things right. We pray that those who are approached, that those who have been offended, would, like you, be gracious upon hearing that expression of repentance, forgive and pursue a renewed relationship with that person. We pray, Lord, that we would be characterized as those who take sin seriously and forgiveness seriously, so much so that we mirror your character in a way that glorifies you here in the church and in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.